This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Hello, good to have you with me this hour for the Country Hour. Have you ever considered the carbon impact of grain-fed versus grass-fed cattle. There's another new study, and this one is suggesting you should move away from purely grass-fed diets to reduce carbon emissions. And the difference in purely grass-fed to a mix or using grain, it's quite significant. I'm really keen to get your thoughts on this this afternoon. Would you move your operation away from being 100% grass-fed to reduce carbon emissions. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four is the text line. You'll hear the detail in that study before half past 12, but I am very keen to get your take on it. Also today, heading down to your local chippy to grab some fish and chips. It might look a little different with lamb chops and even chocolate cake on the menu at some places. This afternoon, you'll hear how a reduced supply of Australian seafood is impacting fish and chip shops right around the country. 0448922604 is the SMS if you'd like to share your thoughts this afternoon. It is always great to hear from you. It's seven minutes past 12. 2024 marks 10 years since rural charity Farmers Across Borders was established. Since then, the group has sent hundreds of trucks of fodder to livestock producers in need. But given 2023 was a tough year for grain growers as well, where is the group getting its donations from? Group President Sam Stasevich says with so much demand here at home, They'll focus on WA producers first and then cross the border if there is enough to go around. Beginning of the year, quietish, um, but then about September we started getting a few calls for help. So we've been going, yeah, since September we've done a couple of runs or just single trucks and trailers up to the Gascoigne and Southern Rangelands and Northern Goldfields. So and just starting to pick up now a bit more interest. So that demand that you're talking about, is it only coming from WA at this stage? Yes, yeah, we have um, we have spoken to, you know, some contacts over east who did sort of want us to do a run, but at this stage, yeah, we're concentrating on WA. We want to look after ourselves first and then, um, you know, if they still need help over east, then we'll address that later on. Now you talk about some of the runs that, that you have done. Is it mostly to pastoral areas? Uh, yes, yep, yep, still mostly the pastoral areas. There was a couple up in that northernmost wheat belt area um, just recently, but, yeah, no, mostly still in the pastoral areas. A lot of those areas are the driest, you know, 30-odd years we're hearing for the 23 seasons, so, yeah. From the truck drivers who are heading up there, I mean, are they surprised at, at how dry it's been? Yes, I think so, yeah. Yeah, no, they are saying it's very dry, um, but it's probably coming from some of the pastoralists as well. So uh, quite a few of them have reached out already just to touch base to see if we have got feed available. And we're just sort of keeping in contact so that if we need to put a bigger run together, we will. But that's why at the moment we're sending, you know, one, two, three, four trucks at a time just to sort of rather than having the big runs, it's just a bit more easier logistically at the moment to do that. 
And one run, I think, um, was delivered on Christmas Eve or the, the guys returned on, on Christmas Eve? Yeah, so the guys, yeah, so three, we had three trucks go up to the, yeah, Gascoigne two days before Christmas or three days before Christmas, so they got back into Esperance on Christmas Eve, yeah. So we'd just been taking up the barley straw as per normal, um, yeah, and Ross is baling again at the moment, so we've got a couple of hundred hectares have been donated, so there's fresh stuff coming on board as well. So, yeah, we'll, we'll have a bit there to help if anybody needs it. You talk about that baling happening at the moment. We know it's been dry right across the state in the the last growing season. So what have you been able to to get in terms of donations? So donations, yeah, it's still just that barley straw in the Esperance region. We're sort of I think, um, yeah, like you say, it's been so dry and hay is down that there is a fair bit of straw baling going on from what we're hearing because there isn't the hay supply around. But, yeah, we're just staying locally at the moment. If we need to do something bigger, we might put the call out. Um, but at the moment, just just doing what we normally do, just bailing in the Esperance region. And, of course, since the last run that you did in the lead-up to Christmas to that Gascoigne and Northern Wheatbelt areas, there have been some significant fires in the southern parts of the state, including here in Esperance. Are you looking at, at some areas that are a little bit further south than what you've been doing recently? Oh, look, if anybody requires it, we'll definitely help out. No one's um, actually asked for assistance, but, you know, yeah, if anybody does need assistance, they just need to give us a call and we'll we'll help out. Now, after one of the driest years on record or the driest year on record for, for many, what are you expecting 2024 will hold for farmers across borders? Um, I'm thinking we're going to be busy in the coming months. Um, yeah, especially up in that goldfields, northern, you know, up in that northern region. Um, I'm expecting it to get busier before... Yeah, well, I'm hoping for a couple of cyclones to dump some water would be lovely. But no, I think I think there's going to be a need for a need for feed. Plenty of people are calling for that cyclonic rain, aren't they? That's Sam Stasevich from Farmers Across Borders. Sam's also a farmer at Salmon Gums, about 100 kilometres north of Esperance, and she was chatting with Tara DeLangraft about the hay runs from that sort of south coast area to the Gascoigne in particular to help pastoralists through the drought. 2023 was a really dry year for a lot of people, you know, half or even a third as much rainfall as their average. And pastoralists in that area, in the Gascoigne area, they will welcome those hay deliveries with open arms, no doubt. The Shire of Upper Gascoigne is also feeling the pinch from a lack of water. CEO John McCleary says the Shire has drilled a new 800 metre artesian bore to try and relieve some of that water pressure. That'll be used primarily on parks and gardens, so we're not taking any water out of the river aquifer, away from the ground, the river aquifer, and we're into a groundwater aquifer. So to put less pressure on that river aquifer, which is where your potable water comes from. And was it in response to the ongoing drought? Correct. We, you know, we understand that we've had our bores, what they call fork, previously on numerous occasions when the water table in the river gets too low, uh, the, the bores fork, in other words, they can't suck enough water. So we, we've always understood that we've needed to look at an alternative water supply. So the options were either to put a deep bore down and see what we had, or the other alternatives, we would have had to look at putting bores down 
but they would have been 25 kilometres away either side of town, basically. The water what we've done is out of there is to be used on gardens rather than, uh, which is what I call environmental water, but it, rather than used for potable water. What are residents saying about the drought? I suppose it's because people that have been here a long time are aware that droughts come and go. That's just part of living where we live. They, they do come, they do go. It's very dry out there. We all understand that there's a lack of feed for the animals. A lot of the pastoral properties have, you know, uh, managed to keep their waters up uh, to the animals, but it's the lack of food because of the lack of rainfall is the biggest issue. So that means a lot of animals have got to, you know, station owners are, are getting animals off the land and sending them elsewhere. Does the Shire struggle to get funding from the state and federal government for drought relief? So once it's declared a drought, then you can access what they call drought relief funding. But the drought relief funding, uh, we've applied for that previously. And because we have such a low normal rainfall, uh, then all of a sudden you, to get the drought, you've virtually got to have no rain for the whole year. It's just a way the criteria is set up. If you're in a place that has a high rainfall, but all of a sudden they, say, lose more than half the rainfall, they still might get four to 500 mil of rain, mind you. But because they meet that criteria, they can apply for it. And, and for us to do that, we've virtually got to have no rain whatsoever. It's probably in its emphasis, the drought, because we've really only, we've come off you know, two, two or three exceptional seasons. So we may have to look at doing some social side of things, you know, trying to make sure that our pastoral people are uh, uh, are being looked after from a from a mental health point of view. Is that something the show's had to do before? We've done it once before. We ran a did a bit of a thing around the Kennedy Ranges where we all went together and you know spent a night out in the, out in the bush camp together and you know just been able to talk about things. These things creep up on people; they don't realise. You know, it depends. You say you're a young person that's come into the area, you know, four or five years, you've got a, you've got a mortgage or a loan, many millions of dollars sitting over your head, you've got no bloody rain, you've got cattle that are, you may, that are in a pretty bad state because they haven't got enough feed on the ground. You, yeah, things can go downhill pretty quickly. What other ways is the drought impacting the Shire? In a funny way, it destroys roads. And what it does is because there's no moisture in the soil, whatsoever so the soil is so dry there's nothing binding it together so your gravel roads blow out they get these dirty great big blowouts and holes and you know all that because there's no moisture to hold those roads together are you know they always were fragile to a degree but the, the drier those roads get the less moisture the, the more fragile they become it's Char of Upper Gascoigne CEO John McCleary speaking with Xander Sapsworth Collis. And we do have a request in with the Bureau of Meteorology to get a full overview of the rain situation, what 2023 brought or rather didn't bring in some cases, and also what you could expect for 2024 rainfall-wise. Hoping to bring you that tomorrow and continue that conversation about this ongoing drought in the Gascoigne 16 past 12. Fortescue Metals Group is officially back online today after its train line was restored overnight. And industry sources told the ABC that Fortescue lost as much as 300 metres of track in a derailment south of Port Hedland on Saturday. Fortescue Media has refused to answer questions but said multiple ore cars derailed and said that no one was injured. We've heard locally it was potentially 
usually as many as 50 wagons which derailed. Now, it's FMG's only route to port, so there were concerns that exports could be impacted by this five-day outage. Fortescue has responded to me today to say it is back online and believes it'll meet its market guidance. They also say um, there's been no change to the shipping guidance for the financial year 2024. The Fortescue, the company has launched an internal investigation into the incident, um, but because it's not a public rail line, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau confirmed to me that it will not be investigating this derailment. But the big news really is that Fortescue Metals Group is back online today. The train line has been restored. On ABC Radio WA, you're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour. Threats to the safety of merchant vessels travelling through the Red Sea is likely to cause delays to freight movements around the world, including to Australia. Healthy militants have been attacking vessels in the busy shipping lane since November. Australia has joined the US and UK governments calling for an immediate end to the attacks and the release of unlawfully detained vessels and crews. Paul Zalay is the Director of Freight and Trade Alliance Australia. He spoke with Sally Sara about what impact this crisis is having on Australian shipping. In terms of containerised trade, so bringing virtually all goods from, you know, your food products through to machinery and uh, and other things, um, we're, we're probably importing about 10 to 15% of containerised trade from uh, origins of Europe and Mediterranean ports, so it's significant. Um, but I think the, the bigger thing is, and we saw this during COVID as well, um, how small our world is now mm. and an impact in one part of the world does have a knock-on effect elsewhere. It's going to draw in uh, vessel capacity and vessel equipment as well. The, the actual sea freight containers, they'll be tied up in longer voyages um, as many of the shipping lines now have um, have made the decision that they're going to, rather than wait outside the Red Sea and, and make a decision there, they actually are transiting now through around the Cape of Good Hope. Mm. Um, so that's adding an extra 10 to 14 days sailing time. So um, I think what we're going to see, an immediate thing that you will see if you are importing your leather lounges or your cheeses or these things, at minimum, you're going to have that extended delay, um, but you will have increased costs. There'll be surcharges put in for the extra fuel required, and we're seeing um, other fees as well and, and increased freight rates. Um, so uh, importers and exporters will definitely be feeling the impact of it. Um, but with the alternate route of going around the Cape of Good Hope, um, there is an alternate path. We certainly learned, as, as you were rightly saying, Paul, during COVID, the effect of that knock-on and just how long it can go on in the supply chain with not only vessels but containers uh, themselves, that was really a, a big lesson at that time. Look, it was. Um, and look, you know, again, a credit in this instance to the Victorian government. Um, they put in a mechanism in place to deal with such crisis um, following COVID. I don't think they expected... Uh, that they would be enacting it so quickly. But combined with um, the ongoing industrial action that we're experiencing at our wharves um, and and other supply chain factors, the Victorian government has actually enacted a, a crisis situation. And um, in fact, we've got an, the first official meeting of that group this afternoon. We need similar responses around the country and, and potentially while the federal government has a limited uh, ability to 
um, you know, to manage the outcomes in the Red Sea, um, they there are some domestic issues here that can be addressed and would ease a lot of the pressure on international trade. So that meeting's happening this afternoon. What are some of the really practical things that will be discussed to get things moving and try and make the best of this situation? Look, I think for starters, it's just clear and accurate information. Um, we're seeing at the moment, because of the disruption to international shipping schedules, we're seeing regularly now that the, the shipping lines um, are bypassing ports. So they, you know, if they're running behind, they might, for example, bypass Sydney and discharge cargo in Melbourne. Um, they will also do quite often what they call a cut and run. So they might get rid of their import containers, but rather than waiting a port, particularly with the disruption with the industrial action, um, they won't necessarily take the export cargo and that leaves cargo stranded at our wharves. So if nothing else, we're trying to bring the stakeholders together. So we've got some clear communication so importers and exporters can make some uh, pragmatic decisions on how they do trade. Mm. And that's important to remember. It's not just affecting the importers. The exporters are going to get hit by the knock-on as well, Paul. Look, I, I would say the exporters are feeling it even harder at the moment. Like I said, uh, we, we've got a situation now where we've got a lot of export commodities being held up at the wharves because there's no vessels there to necessarily take them. Mm. Um, and and again, you look at the impacts there. A lot of our product is high volume and low value. So any increase of costs, you know, even if it's a few hundred dollars per container, that has a massive impact on our regional communities. Insurance is so vital to this um, industry. Is that also creating a lot of difficulty for some of the operators as well? Oh, look, it certainly is. Um, so a lot of the maritime insurers have actually now, uh, insurers of actual cargo, have um, declared the Red Sea and Suez region as a war zone. So that's straight away puts a line through a lot of shippers um, using any shipping lines intending to go down that path. But the bigger the bigger issue that we're facing at the moment is really just the uncertainty. Um, um you know, Maersk, um, which was that Jennifer mentioned earlier, the Hangzhou obviously was subject to attack. But Maersk have been very keen to resume operations there. And half the problem is we've got the start-stop-start situation with vessels just waiting um, and put, or they're using the term pause, um, waiting to try and get a safe passage through there. Meanwhile, other shipping lines, and excuse the pun, have bitten the bullet and um, they've just made the decision that they're just going to go through the Cape of Good Hope. Um, so while that does come with extra cost and delays, at least the trading community have a level of predictability. Um, and, and I think my gut feeling is that we're going to see all the shipping lines just follow that path unless we can see some very strong action in the region to give safe passage. Um, I, I just don't think the international trade sector and shipping lines themselves with their scheduling can operate in this unpredictable environment and we'll, we'll have to make some uh, long-term decisions soon. Paul Zalay is the director of the Freight and Trade Alliance Australia, 24 past 12. Are you a fan of fish and chips? I wonder, I reckon there's just something so good about heading down to the local, picking up a piping hot parcel for dinner, maybe taking it down to the beach. Some cafes, um, the tides are changing and their menus could soon look very different. Abby, Halt, Abby Halter has this story. 
fillets of fish straight from the sea, fried in silver baskets with crispy hot chips. It's what you'd expect at a fish and chip shop. But what about lamb chops or chocolate cake? As one of the owners of Fish Divine in Airlie Beach, Kevin Collins built a reputation as an exclusive high-end specialist fish restaurant, but he says it's impossible to maintain. Despite being just metres from the Great Barrier Reef, he says two-thirds of the fish on his specials menu has disappeared, so he's had to diversify. The big impact for me is our specials list, because our specials list every day reflects what's being caught every day by our fishermen. We've got six fishermen that work for the restaurant direct full-time, and what they catch today is on the menu tonight, and when it's gone, it's gone, and something else comes on the menu tomorrow. Um, so it's, it's our capacity to introduce specials and to entertain and educate and, and delight people with fish they won't normally see on a restaurant menu. That's what's missing. And, uh, and so the menu proper, um, we're introducing lamb, we're introducing pork belly, we're introducing chicken, we're introducing beef, which traditionally we, we really haven't gone there because we're so proud of our fish. And it's, it's just a difficult thing to be... The fish restaurant, it's, it's the pub with no beer, isn't it? It is the pub with no beer. So uh, uh, Slim Dusty can write, a, can write a, uh, I guess, a song about a fish and chip shop with no fish. The twin headwinds of falling supply and rising costs has put pressure on local fishers. And when combined with the rising cost of living and looming gillnet bans, many in the industry are struggling to stay viable. A couple hours south of Ailey Beach in Mackay, family-owned Debbie Seafood has turned to coffee and cake to fill out the menu. Manager Natalie Fitzgerald says they were forced to adapt. Well, our claim to fame's always been that, like, you can come here and you'll, you have at least half a dozen types of fish you can pick from because, you know, we've got what we have in the fresh seafood shop, um, the guys come at batter, um, and then you can sort of have it in the cafe, you know, you can pick from what's available. That's probably the biggest thing we've noticed with the reduction in fresh local seafood, you know, like our barramundi and king salmon, those are the ones that have been affected with the recent changes. Um, we don't have those to offer anymore. So next year, the cafe is actually going to not be a fish and chip shop. We have to stop that. It'll be more coffees um, and items out of the fresh display. So it'll be wraps, sandwiches, and then we'll have, you know, like maybe one type of fish and chip a day, a curry. We have to stop doing fish and chips full time, like as our main source through the cafe because of those stock limitations and stuff. We've had to diversify the menu greatly because of the reduction in supply. It's not just the East Coast struggling. Barramundi helped put the Kimberley in Western Australia on the map, but CEO of WA Fishing Industry Council Darrell Hockey says people aren't always getting local fish in the Golden State either. For instance, up in Broome, the Kimberley Marine Parks have been put in and have taken away huge areas of productive waters, particularly for the barramundi fishery. So um, all the barramundi caught in West Australian Kimberley were always consumed by the tourists that went to the Kimberleys. So there was an expectation that people who went holidaying there that they could try some of the local fish. Now we're getting reports that some of the restaurants are importing their fish from South Australia um, to because they just simply can't get enough local fish to, to meet demand. That's the CEO of the WA Fishing Industry Council, Daryl Hockey. He was ending that report by Abby Halter. 28 past 12. Have you ever considered the carbon impact of grass versus 
grain-fed cattle. We talk about carbon all the time, but a new study has found the difference between the two is more significant than previously thought. It's 40% higher, in fact, and it's suggesting cattle farmers should move away from purely grass-fed diets to help reduce carbon emissions. I'm keen to get your thoughts on this. Would you move your operation away from entirely grass-feeding to reduce your carbon emissions? The text line 0448 922604. Dan Blaustin-Rato is the Director of Food and Agriculture at the Breakthrough Institute. He led this study and he says it's really important to get the full picture when talking about beef production and carbon. As the saying goes, you can't manage what you don't measure. And, and frankly, measurements of beef's carbon footprint have traditionally been quite incomplete and arguably quite poor. They generally only account for emissions from things like manure, uh, cow burps or enteric fermentation, that's the technical term, or producing feed, but they don't account for how grazing cattle can sequester or store more carbon in the soil. And they also generally don't account for the carbon cost of using land to grow crops for cattle or to graze that cattle when that land could be used for something else instead, like reforesting it or restoring it to grasslands and whatnot, which can sequester more carbon. And yeah, once you take those added factors into account, what did you find? Maybe one of the bigger takeaways is that these carbon footprints, when you account for these things, especially when you account for the carbon cost of land use, is significantly larger than typically estimated, about twice as large, a little, a little bit more than that. And another important takeaway is that even when you account for the carbon that can be sequestered or stored from grazing cattle, beef are not carbon neutral or negative as many companies and people are increasingly starting to claim, but rather they still have a significant carbon footprint. But one positive takeaway, I'd say, from, from the study is, is it helps identify what types of beef production do have a lower carbon footprint. What, what's most important? What are some of the things that can help cut those emissions? And one of those is simply producing more beef per acre or hectare because cutting down that land footprint is so critical to cutting beef's overall carbon footprint. One of the main findings from the study is that Grain-fed beef typically has a smaller carbon footprint than, than grass-fed beef. Grass-fed operations often have a, a 40% or so higher carbon footprint, but there's a really important exception that's relevant especially for many Australian producers. Using land for grazing beef doesn't have much of a carbon if that land is relatively dry and otherwise couldn't support much other vegetation. The carbon cost of land use comes from that land having some other alternative use. So what implications might come from knowing all this? I'd say the top takeaway, especially for policymakers, is that to really reach these global goals and targets to reduce beef's carbon footprint, a global scale we really need to invest in enabling ranchers and other beef producers to be more productive, to produce more with less, especially with less land. 
That's Dan Blaustenrato. He's the Director of Food and Agriculture at the Breakthrough Institute. He was speaking with Elsie Adamo about this study that's been done looking at the difference between purely grass-fed and grain-fed diets in cattle, talking about the carbon emissions associated with it. John has been in touch. John Hassel's been in touch on the text line 0448922604. He says all, and I mean all of the carbon emissions from cattle regardless of the source comes from the atmosphere in the first place it's not new carbon released from fossil fuels thank you for that text you can get in touch as well zero double four eight nine double two six zero four and let me know whether that thought of carbon emissions and being able to maybe reduce your carbon emissions um, by grain feeding instead of being purely grass-fed whether that would change things for you Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. 26 to 1 on the country hour. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon and the weather continues to be rather hot and wet across much of the state. Tara DeLangraff caught up with the duty forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology Joey Rawson a very short time ago. He's got all the details starting with the weather in the South Westland Division. Yeah, so we've got some interesting weather in the southwest land division, especially in the southeastern parts. Um, we have this mid-level trough that's kind of stationary and it's pumping a fair bit of cloud up through the Eucla and, and also um, through the southern districts. Um, so there is a bit of uh, rain falling out of it. East of Esperance, um, I know that's kind of the eastern uh, boundary of the Southwest Land Division, but through the Eucla, we could potentially get around 10 to 20 millimetres uh, today. But as you move further west, so as we get to Esperance, that rain will drop off a fair bit, be more around that one to two millimetres at Esperance. And as you continue to move further towards, say, Albany, we'll just be getting something like a, a light sprinkle there. Um, as far as moving north um, to places like Kalgoorlie, it's really going to be limited to the Eucla, the, the bigger falls, the 10 to 20 millimetre falls. So Kalgoorlie may just get a sprinkle today um, out of that mid-level disturbance. So um, most of the rest of the Southwest Land Division uh, won't get much, um, just maybe a sprinkle in the southeastern parts of the Great Southern. Uh, but once you get to that centre, Central Wheat Belt and Midwest region, uh, no rain really expected there. So that is for today. That's going to be a similar story for tomorrow because that mid-level feature doesn't really go anywhere. So again, uh, the Eucla district may get around 10 to 20 millimetres, but as you move east and sort of, uh, sorry, west and northwest from that uh, feature, that rain will drop off quite a fair bit. So um, Esperance tomorrow will probably be the western boundary of getting some showers um, and it will certainly increase as you move uh, towards Eucla and into the Eucla district. Um, so that is for Friday. And then as we move into the weekend, that feature disappears. So we'll just get some leftover light stuff through the Eucla district and stretching into Esperance. Uh, but by Sunday, it, it should all have moved out to the east. 
So, um, yeah, we usually get weather from uh, the, the fronts uh, from the southwest. This is more coming from the southeast, which is why it's a little bit interesting through those areas. Mm, it is. And obviously some rain in the south. As we head north, I hear there's been a bit of rain in that neck of the woods as well. Yeah, so there has been a couple of things going on. So we've, we've had some pretty good thunderstorms through the Kimberley over the last couple of days. The Gibb River Road had some falls around 76 millimetres um, prior to yesterday and we had some falls around 50 millimetres at Columbaroo, um in the 24 hours to now um, from thunderstorms. So um, the Kimberley... Um, has these thunderstorms that are not moving very fast. So if you do get a thunderstorm in that area, um, you can expect uh, a fair bit of rain, but just quite localised where that thunderstorm is um, before it basically dies out. So um, for the next few days, those thunderstorms and over the Kimberley are not going to move fast. So um, we potentially could get falls around that sort of 20 at the low end to... 50 or 60 millimetres um, through the next um, maybe three to four days uh, before we start seeing those winds increase to move the thunderstorms away from the one area. So um, it's certainly been interesting through the Kimberley and also through the interior. We've had some pretty good storms uh, move through Giles uh, last night. We had some falls around 50 millimetres or 41 millimetres, sorry, Mm. and some wind gusts around 100 kilometres per hour. So for this afternoon, we're expecting something similar. So if you are in Giles or potentially Warburton, um, there is the potential for thunderstorms to develop and there could be the risk of getting some uh, heavy falls and also some damaging winds and also the potential for some large hail. Um, at the moment, there's a line of thunderstorms that stretch basically from Warburton all the way westward to around Mekathara, and that's going to continue uh, throughout the day. But the, the more sinister storms are going to develop in the afternoon into the evening. Um, as far as those thunderstorms for um, tomorrow, uh, most of the north and east of the state are going to get some form of thunderstorms. It's only um, your your western parts of the Pilbara and western Gascoigne that are not going to get anything. Uh, but once we get into the weekend, most of the Pilbara clears out, the Gascoigne clears out, um, and that will be the case for Saturday and Sunday. And most of the south interior clears out also during uh, basically Sunday and Monday. But, yeah, we'll still get uh, those storms through the Kimberley that could produce some decent falls. Mm. And speaking of the north, that heat uh, wave warning still current. Any other warnings around, Joey? Uh, yeah, we've certainly got that heat wave warning continuing. So, uh, And that covers you know, the southwest Kimberley and, and parts of the eastern Pilbara. So... Marble Bar, for example, it's uh, we've had 49 degrees there um, a few days ago and it's cooled off a little bit if you say 44 is cooling off and 43, but as we get to Saturday and Sunday, it's warming up again. So we've got 45 for Saturday, 46 for Sunday and 47 for Monday. So uh, certainly hot conditions um, continuing in the north, but we 
also have the coastal wind warnings um, along the west coast, so the Gascoigne coast, uh, the Geraldton coast, the Lewin coast and also the um, Lancelin coast. That is Joey Rawson from the Bureau of Meteorology chatting with Tara Langraft about the weather forecast for the next few days, talking quickly about rainfall, which Joey touched on. Uh, for the 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, looking at totals over 5 millimetres in the Kimberley Drysdale River Station had 43 mils, Gibb River 7, Columbaroo 52, Kununurra Aero 7, Kununurra Checkpoint had 40, Theatre had 40, Truscott 14 and Wyndham Aero had five. Gosh, it really goes to show just being under those right thunderstorms. Uh, Eucla Air had 15. Red Rocks Point had six. And in the south, a few places with a millimetre or two. Only Mount Howick in the southern coastal region had five millimetres, although that was recorded over two days. ABC Local Radio Harvest Ban Information. Due to the risk of fire, a harvest ban has been issued for today. That's Thursday the 4th of January for the following local government areas. The city of Greater Geraldton, including Mullawar. That's the only one. So there is a harvest ban for today, Thursday the 4th of January, for the city of Greater Geraldton, including Mullawar. If you'd like more detailed information, including zones or any other restrictions and the lifting of harvest bans, contact your local government but there is that harvest ban in place today. It is 18 to 1 on the Country Hour. A few texts coming through on the story we were talking about just before that weather check to do with carbon and the difference between grain and grass-fed beef and the carbon emissions associated with that uh, production type. 0448922604 is a text line. A few people getting in touch. John Hassel had said uh, just previously that the difference is that all carbon from cattle come from from a source in the atmosphere. It's not new carbon released from fossil fuels. And someone has responded to say, here, here, John Hassel. And what on earth is the Breakthrough Institute? That was the group that did the study. It's a policy institute based out of Berkeley in California, a global research centre, which, and this is its words, identifies and promotes technological solutions to environmental and human development challenges. There's also a text uh, from someone else to say the cost of grains plus hay plus machinery to feed cattle will not pay at the price supermarkets pay for our cattle. And Richard says, as a commercial beef producer, our business model is primarily based on doing more with less and maximising kilograms of beef produced per hectare. The real problem is the disconnect between our industry and the rest of society. Thank you, Richard. 0448922604. If you'd like to get in touch this afternoon, always good to hear from you. On ABC Radio WA, you're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour. A family in Margaret River is using regenerative agriculture in their pasture-raised chicken production. Sam and Steph Hondemar own Roses Ridge. It's a 48-hectare property about 260 kilometres from Perth. They're pretty new to farming, so they've spent the last few years experimenting with different ways to produce meat and to sell direct to their customers. The couple say they went down a bit of a rabbit hole to get to where they are today. We watched Food Inc, a documentary, 
and uh, we just saw a farm that was raising animals and the animals looked really happy so I researched this guy this guy's name was Joel Salatin and um, yeah we just went down the rabbit hole regen ag and uh, went to YouTube school for years a lot of people don't know what the difference between pasture-raised chicken and free-range chicken. So educating our consumers has been amazing. Um, it's a goal, actually, of ours. Sam Hondema owns a chicken farm with his wife, Steph, in Rosa Brook, a small community near Margaret River. The way they do things is a bit different than your traditional chicken farming. Uh, they're kept in a flawless coop, and we run about 600 chickens per coop. Uh, we have five of them, uh, so they're like a greenhouse coop that we have uh, with a flawless system so we can um, yeah move them every day so they're on skids and we just get the tractor in and uh, pull them up to, to a new new piece of land every day. Each morning Sam watches the sunrise from his farm. He isn't up to just watch the sunrise though he's up moving thousands of chickens from one spot to another. Five o'clock I'd come out and um, yeah we move five groups every day. I mean you get some looks on the road because we're on a main road from Nan up to the Moat River and uh, you see people slowing down and saying what's that person doing <laughs> moving all these coops. What do the chickens do when you're moving? Are they, are you taking them out or are they moving along with you? Uh, the chickens stay in the coop and they'll move along. We do run um, a conveyor belt on the back and the front so if we do get any slow ones they'll pop out the back. Rosa Ridge is a 48-hectare property. Sam and Steph are a first-generation farming family, so they started the business with a fresh set of eyes. So I was a uh, city boy. I grew up in Perth. So I, I was a hydraulic fitter. I worked for my dad's company, um, but I didn't love it like he did, so I didn't take over the business, and I had to find out what I wanted to do, and uh, farming came up in Mount Gambia. So we moved the whole family over, in 2016 to Mount Gambia and we um, yeah we, we lived on a dairy farm for a year which was a eye-opening experience but we loved it we decided to see how we can get into get into farming I wouldn't say I'm an outright country girl but I did grow up um, here in the southwest on a really small um, beautifully run herringbone um, dairy really just it introduced me to, to country life and how beautiful it is working working out in nature and living out in nature and amongst animals. I'm very, very grateful for that. How much is it costing someone to buy your chicken? About fourteen fifty a kilo. I think it goes from $25 for a whole chicken to $36. Is that right? Yeah. People who are actually coming to your store, are they asking you, you know, what's different about your product versus a product they could probably buy much easier just by going to Coles and Woolworths? Yeah, um, in the early days, people didn't know what regenerative agriculture was. So it was a big journey teaching people, teaching our consumers what, what regenerative meat is and what pasture-raised is. There's um, A lot of people don't know what the difference between pasture-raised chicken and free-range chicken. So educating our consumer has been amazing. Um, it's a goal, actually, of ours to, to, to really provide the education so that people know what they're buying. The portable chicken chalets are the first of their kind seen in Australia. They say there's only a handful of other poultry farmers that are using the similar methods. There's a lot of people that want to do it and they're looking into it but yeah there's four four active growers at the moment in, in Western Australia. Like every farming operation though these portable chicken coops accompanied with regenerative farming comes with its challenges. Crows are 
they're horrendous. When we first move them out the brooder, they're still quite small, the chickens. And um, they'll try and scare them out the coop. They'll, they'll try and get through the mesh and pick them out. Uh, we've lost probably the most due to crows. Uh, the foxes, they, they rip the mesh off. We've had them get in the coop and wipe out pretty much most of them in there, uh, which is very de- devastating. We, we've done a few measures to upgrade the coops. We've put thicker mesh on, thicker uh, conveyor belt on so they can't get in, and so far it's working. So. Does that cost you more then if you're having to use more materials? It does a bit, but the, the stronger mesh will, I don't think it, it'll last a long time, and the, the conveyor belt, I don't think that's ever going to break down. So the cost is not, uh, not, not an issue when, when you lose so many chickens. Sam and Steph Hondema, they were speaking with Kate Forrester about their pasture-raised chicken production in Margaret River. They're a first-generation farming family using regenerative practices on spray-free pastures. 10 to 1. WA's largest grain storer and handler, the CBH Group, has unveiled the results of its director election process. Gareth Rowe in District 1, Natalie Browning in District 3 and Simon Stead in District 5 have all been elected unopposed. No one nominated to challenge the incumbents in either the candidate assessment panel uh, process or outside the process for any of those three positions. Their formal reappointment will take place at the CBH Group annual, annual general meeting in Perth. That's on Friday the 23rd of February. You're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. A national carbon soil sampling project is offering WA landholders the chance to get some soil testing done for free. As part of the federal government's National Soil Carbon and Innovation Challenge, the University of Queensland and a collection of agribusinesses are mapping soil organic carbon across the country. It's hoped that putting a sample set of data together will make baseline measurements for soil carbon cheaper and the Australian Carbon Credit Unit generating projects easier to establish. Environmental data provider Farm Lab is leading the sampling project and CEO Sam Duncan says places are still available. What we're doing is we're providing a subsidy to farmers essentially through either their existing consultants or we can link them up with a consultant that's part of the program to cover the cost of soil sampling across two different management areas across their farm. So they get some um, pretty high quality data, soil carbon measurements in particular, and um, they can then use that for whatever they want to use that for in understanding the variability of carbon and understanding their management practices and the effect that that's had on uh, soil carbon. And then the data is then used by University of Queensland and the project participants to help formulate new ways to better spatially measure soil carbon so that in the future we don't have to conduct as many samples and do as many tests. What do you mean by spatially? Carbon does tend to vary a lot across across the landscape. So, you know, farmer, we've found this so far, we've sampled about 100 and 110 or so farms for this particular project all around Australia. And we're finding that carbon does vary. We're finding some farms with about a 4 to 5% 
variation in soil carbon. So that's, you know, think of it, average soil carbon levels, let's say in, in the cropping belt of WA might be sort of 0.5 to 1.5%. The, across, across an individual farm, you may have variability. Um, you may have that entire variability, you know, going from 0.5 to 1.5 or even, even higher. That is usually because the farmer may have different management practices that they've implemented over the past few years that have had an effect on carbon underground and in the soil. And of course, this is really important because when you look at the future and sort of where we're going with emissions trading, carbon offset programs, it's important to know what you have today, but also your ability and propensity to change soil carbon based on management practice that that you can implement on that land if you're a land manager. Yeah. So if land managers and property owners are interested in participating in this work, can the results of these tests be used as baselines for future carbon projects for them? These can't be used for baselines currently. Part of the project is to help create and develop a new methodology that can be used as a baseline. But what we would suggest uh, to participants is, is that this is used as a pre-baseline. So part of the importance of that is you really want to understand where carbon is high and low before you enter a project. This program gives enough information. Um, in fact, it gives more than enough information to understand that so that when you do go out and sample for a baseline, you can sample optimally by creating the right strata and the, the right zones to to enter into the project and program. This data can also be used to understand the effect of historic management on soil carbon in the ground. So if there are any farmers out there that are unsure or uncertain of their ability to sequester soil carbon and to in- increase soil carbon in the ground based on their management practices, if they've got a few you know, trial paddocks or paddocks that they've implemented different management practices on, this is a really great program for understanding you know, what the effect of those practices has been on the soil carbon. And so are you looking for properties where people have been um, playing with perhaps some different pastures or things to improve their their soil? Different applications, different, um, you know, organic compost. So we've had quite a few farmers that have, their management practice has been implementing an organic compost on one paddock versus synthetic fertiliser on another paddock or having cover crops used between seasons on a certain paddock and having a look at the effect that that has on soil carbon. A lot of a lot of the producers we've been working with so far have really clear differences in their cropped paddocks versus their grazed paddocks where they may have had a perennial pasture in for the last few years as well. So yes, we're absolutely looking for different management practices because we think that adds uh, a lot more value to the data for the farmer themselves because we want to make sure that whilst you know the government are getting a great outcome here and University of Queensland are getting a good outcome that the farmers themselves benefit from the data at the end of the day. That's Farm Lab CEO Sam Duncan speaking with Lucinda Jose. And if you'd like more info about that project or if you'd like to be involved, go to getfarmlab.com slash carbon getfarmlab.com slash carbon. It's five to one. Australia has been infiltrated by six-legged foreign agents, but instead of spying for the enemy, their mission should they choose to accept it, is to fight the war on weeds. Megan Hughes has this story. In the 1980s, the Queensland government started recruiting a sleeper cell of insects and fungi from overseas to assassinate one of the world's hardest-to-kill pest plants, Pathinium weed. It's originally from North America and it takes over when native plants are weakened – 
It's resistant to herbicides, toxic to animals, and causes allergic reaction in humans. It causes crop losses, displays native vegetation, and mainly in central Queensland, I would say, reduces pasture production. So it can't compete. The pasture cannot compete with the parthenium, so they reduce the carrying capacity of the cattle. That's senior principal scientist Dr Kunjitapatam Dilipan from Biosecurity Queensland. He's been involved in this program for decades. Pythidium weed took off in the 1950s, spreading from contaminated seed imported from the United States to Clermont in central Queensland. The average is about 4,000 seeds per plant, but there are some plants we have seen up to more than 100,000 seeds. Produce enormous number of seeds. Also, the seeds can live in the soil for a very long time. So even if we start controlling now, the amount of seed in the soil is so high, it keeps coming back in the next 10, 15 years. This plant can be killed by herbicides, but the dosage required makes it too expensive and it poses a risk to the nearby Great Barrier Reef. So in 1975, a biocontrol program was established and it remains one of the longest running programs of its kind in Australia. But Australia's track record on using introduced species to combat other pests and weeds isn't spotless. While there has been some successes... The trick is to avoid mistakes, like the introduction of the cane toad, which was brought in to eat the cane beetle, but quickly became an even bigger problem than the one it was trying to solve. So to start, the biocontrol team watched these pythinium-killing agents in their native habitats in Central and South America before selecting its recruits. They then applied to the federal government to import them to high-quarantine facilities for trials, and the cream of the crop was selected for controlled field trials. Actually, the application goes to all the states. No, It has to be approved by every state, because once you put an agent in one state, it'll go everywhere, so you don't have any control. So the application will be going to all the stakeholders, everyone. Between 1980 and 2004, 11 different species of insect and two rust fungi were released into areas impacted by pythinium weed. And in true secret mission style, each of the agents brings a unique skill set to the fight. So there's a moth that eats the stems and its larvae creates a cancerous growth which stunts the plant's growth, while a weevil targets the seeds and a beetle eats the leaves. This is all supported by the rusk fungi which also attacks the leaves. But like any good spy, they need handlers. That's where the Central Highlands Regional Council comes in. They deploy the zygogramma beetles and rust fungi, as Rural Lands Officer Susan Walters explains. So it's finding it and trying to yeah, establish it in other places. Like 18 months ago when we found it, we'd put it at you know, a couple of our council water reserves along the stock route. Then we'd also taken it to you know, four or five landowners in the district you know, for them to hopefully... Um, and then also we gave some to the, uh, the North Burnett Catchment Group. The Queen's Megan Hughes with that report. And if you'd like to hear more or read more about that, there is an online story. You can see that at the ABC Rural website. That is it for me for the WA Country Hour for another day. You can catch me again tomorrow from midday on the podcast while the cricket is on or on the ABC Listen app. Just search for WA Country Hour and there'll be an analogue version during the cricket tea break as well if you'd like to catch us then. Enjoy your afternoon. It's one o'clock.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.